Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. As a small business owner, you are the business, and you know the time you're spending on payroll and HR could be spent in a hundred better ways. Ceridian PowerPay is fast, simple, and intuitive software trusted by over 40,000 Canadian small business owners like you. Automate your HR and payroll processes, keep track of compliance, and pay your people from your desktop or mobile phone. Free up time to focus on what really matters when it comes to your business, and get back to doing what you love with Ceridian PowerPay. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. On this show, we connect you with the most innovative and entrepreneurial movers, shakers, and changemakers across Canada. With day-in-the-life stories and in-their-shoes experiences, we dive into the true grit of running startup and scale-up companies and the lives of those driving the entrepreneurial movement in Canada. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Matt Curtis, and welcome to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. And today we're thrilled to have Solon Angel, founder of MindBridge AI. Solon founded MindBridge in 2015 with a Sears insights into how important artificial intelligence would be for accounting, specifically audits, in just a few years. A true advocate for AI in the profession, Solon's company MindBridge AI has played an important part in what is now the inevitable change in audit technology globally. He's a father of two, who has held up to four passports at some point in his life, and if he wasn't working in high tech, he'd be a marine biologist living on a sailboat. Welcome to the show, Solon. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. We're very happy to have you. So, Salon, before we get into things today, I want to know what's the main takeaway you want entrepreneurs to have from our conversation? Well, I think the main thing I'd like entrepreneurs to think about and to maybe take away from our conversation is that um, unconventional success sometimes requires unconventional thinking or unconventional path taken. And that's something that people seldom appreciate, which is behind every um, success, and I don't consider myself widely successful as other entrepreneurs, but to some extent, but if you actually spend time talking to people, um, for example, um, in our hometown in Ottawa, it's hard not to pay attention to Shopify. And if you look at the co-founders, they all have unconventional backgrounds. If you look at um, you know, I did a short stunt of two years by Silicon Valley and I had the chance to be exposed to David Sachs speaking about the PayPal mafia. And if you look at some of them, they were playing with, you know, they were kids, teenagers in Russia playing with throwing dynamite in fields for fun. Like there's, there's often a very unconventional um, people behind. And, and if they are not in conventional path taken, they have unconventional thought patterns like artists prodigy artists that go into business and they just think things about very differently. Mm. Not every adventure and not every venture has a roadmap, right? Exactly. 
So let's get into a, a bit of an overview of MindBridge AI. Can you explain to our audience what it is you do and how your journey has contributed to its creation? Sure, of course. So MindBridge AI bridges the gap between human and, and machines intelligence uh, to address issues in financial data. And our goal is essentially that uh, MindBridge provides you the most trustworthy insights on your financial statements or on transactions or simply on what's going on within your corporation or government uh, by looking at the, you know, the financial data. Uh, I always say that finance, financial data and finance departments and also banks are the lifeblood, are the blood of the economy, right? So when, you, when it gets stained and de with diseases like money laundering or anomalies, the whole body suffers. Like, for example, um, if there's a lack of faith in um, capital markets because there's a lot of companies that are being, um, you know, doing uh, incorrect financial reporting, well, guess what? Investors' confidence will wane and you will have a, market, a capital market issue, if not a crisis, right? So uh, trust is, is quintessential to capitalism, and we're doing a humble part to try to really address issues that have been going on for decades and have not been addressed. Mm. I, I, I do like that analogy of, um, of banks uh, acting as kind of the heart of the uh, financial, not ecosystem, but the financial body, and yeah. um, needing them to you know, be functioning and strong and healthy with best practices uh, going across the board. and. Um, and it really is it really is an interesting role to play. Um, it's it's almost as if uh, Mindbridge is acting like the uh, like the security at the airport doing all the bag checks before they get loaded on the plane. That's that's a great analogy. Uh, the other way I look at it, if you look at the body, um, I think will be uh, probably something that filters the blood, right? Um, no, uh, like white blood cells. Yes. Um, so, or yeah, there's many analogies, but you know. Cleaning the world's finances um, is really like, if you ask me, there's a difference between the official corporate mission and then there's my personal. The way I explain it to everyone, I want to clean the world's finances. Three words, mm -hmm. clean world's mm -hmm. finances. Um, <laughs> and that, that includes any type of financial data. Mm. I like that. I like that. That's, uh, yeah, a great, great way to frame all that up. And now if you could get into the story of Solon Angel, founder of MindBridge AI. How did you find yourself on this path? What was what was that kind of? Uh, when did you walk out of your door and go, you know what, I'm going to do this? Oh, that's a. <laughs> so there was two phases. There was really the building up of frustration over years. Um, you know, in the industry where I arrived. I mean, the funny part is that I thought the startup thing was something when I was young, 21 years old, 22 years old in San Francisco. I did it for two years. I learned a lot about business. It's in my past. And I never associated myself. I have, I have had a real lack of self-awareness. Um, I really didn't associate myself as being an entrepreneur, which is very crazy. When you look at my, my mother uh, was like a, a, one of the first very successful women entrepreneurs in Brazil. Uh, my father never had a, a corporate job. My uh, uncle uh, were very entrepreneurial, and another uncle had businesses um, in Paris. Uh, in um, you know, in my whole family, you look at the background. It's like, how did you think you'd be different? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I thought I really thought that this was in the past. And so, when I, I left California and the U.S., um, I, you know, it was really a personal choice of, you know, settling with my, uh, the mother of my children, she's my former wife. And I really thought it was in the past. And I thought that this is something I'm not going to do again. But there was so many things that I saw in that industry 
uh, that started boiling up inside of me. And I think the really, the first, you know, what I call um, coup de semence in French, which means, you know, when you're on the battlefield and someone fires the first shot and it's usually mm -hmm. a big cannon, it wakes up everyone, right? right. There's the first explosion. Um, for anyone that has served, uh, thank you for your service, they understand that. So it wakes up everyone very quickly. Um, and to me, that was the financial crisis. I was paying attention to a lot of things going on during the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. And then all of a sudden, the case of Bernie Madoff uh, exploded in my face um, through my professional adventures. The SEC was using a, a product that I used to manage that was very antiquated. Um, and, and I realized the whole world, the whole world didn't see the problem. The whole world didn't see that there was just something wrong as to how someone who was chairman of NASDAQ got away with it so many times and there were so many opportunities to stop him. So I reached out for years. I was talking to a lot of fraud. And by the way, like the, the CFE community, the, the certified fraud examiners are so small. They are like, we're talking a few tens of thousands in North America. Those mm -hmm. guys are like the Jedi's and they don't have lightsabers. That's the best way I can describe it. There's very few of them. And then, in, and then if you look at auditors, same thing. And finance and, and accountants at, at large, there's just not that many. I can assure you there's far more people trying to skew the system and commit fraud and just or, or simply people that make errors than there is accountants to look after it. There's just mm -hmm. a complete imbalance in the force. So it boiled up for a long time. And then one day, I think when it really triggered it, and it, it might sound silly, but when I became a father... I realized I had a duty to leave the world better than I found it for my oldest mm. daughter. And I made the math of being a good corporate boy, having kids in North America, which is not France, where education is not as accessible. And there's just something that clicked. It's just like, I have the, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? I need to see mm -hmm. if someone's doing it. I went on a mission looking for who's doing it. I went back to California, which usually is always at the cutting edge. And I look, is there anyone funded? Because I hate competition. I don't like to compete. So to me, it's like if I go, it's to win. I don't like to lose. And so I went to Silicon Valley and I said to Simple, if there's one guy, a single person that I received $1 to address that problem, I'm not doing it. And I went there, spent two weeks, went through my network, went through events. There was no one. So that's that's when I said, you know, this is you know, this is it. I, I really need to, you know, quit whatever I'm doing, stop whatever I'm doing, and incorporate it the next month. Mm. There's a book that really, um, you know, when I was flying back from San Francisco, I was really full of self-doubt, and I read the book um, from zero to one of Peter Thiel that had just been released. And it was that chart that I remember forever about the inverted bell curve of characters as to what makes a founder versus a normal person. And, and this is when it struck me that I didn't have a choice. And it was, I was full of fear because it was two young kids and not that much savings. It was a big deal for me. Understandably so. And, and I really love that, uh, that entire journey you laid out for us because to me it seems like it really hits all of the key points about uh, entrepreneurship in general and really finding that there is a problem that exists, mm -hmm. feeling like somebody needs to do something about it, and then realizing if anybody's going to do something, it's going to have to be you. And I, I think what what makes it so poignant is the uh, is the fact that this realization came after, like you said, you had your first child, and you realize that you know what, like I have this responsibility, I have this obligation um, to fulfill that in order to, you know, make not only my daughter's life better, but um, everybody else around me to a certain extent by by me leaving, you know, 
yep. my mark on this world. Yeah. And and doing that is is such a it, yeah, no, it's 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 an incredible incredible story. Well, look, we we're all leaders at some point and as soon as we're leaders of our families or communities or businesses, we all have a duty to lead at some point and I mean, to her to her credit, uh, it was a very difficult journey for me and my ex-wife. But my former spouse, basically, at some point, she was torn apart. She did, she was full of fear of me doing that because she doesn't come from a background of entrepreneurs. Mm. And and I was full of self-doubt. And I remember I was sitting on the couch, and one day she, I was saying, you know what? I can't do this. This is crazy. Um, like, but I, I don't see anyone doing it, but that's it. I'm, I'm good to give up because the math is just too risky. Mm. Everyone tells me AI is not real. <laughs> you know, there were so many naysayers. And... Um, and she told me something, she says, so one day you have to look at our daughter and explain her what is courage. And even if you fail, you need to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? That simple sentence, you have to explain yourself to your children. And you have to be able to explain what courage is. So how can you talk about it if you don't demonstrate it? Exactly. That's exactly it. And it really just because uh, it, it does come down to that simple one simple choice, one simple thought, which is, well, if it's not going to be me, then it's going to be nobody. Yeah. Well, actually, that's, there's a sentence. Like, So my, my co-founder and partner, the CEO of MindBridge, um, goes around town often lately talking about the importance of believing in yourself. And he tells me, he gave me that charade. He's always full of mm-hmm. dad jokes and charades. <laughs> and he says, so long, um, I'll t- I'm going to tell you, if there's one sentence, 10 words of less with two to three letters, maximum on each word, that is the most important, which one it is. So I repeat, 10 words, two to three letters max per word. And the sentence goes like that. If it has to be, it's up to me. Mm. Right? Yep. It's true. It's it's absolutely true. I think we're uh, now to kind of pull back the scope a, a, a little bit. Um, and it's, it's hard to reorient after that because that was just such a, uh, such, such an impactful thing to end that, uh, that answer on. But um, to, to kind of pull back our scope here, um, I want to get your opinion on why you find it so important to be recognized in Canada and abroad with uh, the innovation that AI can offer. We have a, it's, 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 Something so important. Thank you for asking this question. Guys, like, let's be, I'm talking to all Canadian entrepreneurs here. We started this. Modern AI was Jeff Hinton, right? With that white paper in 2013, I think, or 2012. And it's simple. Like, we created a category. We literally, the Canadian government, chugged along for decades when everyone gave up on it, Right. Welcome, Jeff Hinton then left the US because he didn't want to do too much military stuff. And again, it's a Keynesian story. It was like openness to immigration of someone qualified and decades after pays out. But guess what? There's tons of startups, of businesses, of countries that have created a category and failed at it and gave it to someone else. Mm-hmm. There's tons of that. So are we going to be category creators that actually push forward and ambitious and continue to de- to push forward, or are we going to fall in second, third, and fourth place? Because I can tell you, the, the world is not going to wait for us, and we don't have, you know what? We don't have the privilege of numbers. We don't have the privilege of China pouring thousands and tens of thousands of high-quality STEM graduate. So you have to look at other places, like for example Israel, which very small numbers, but we're able to become leaders globally in cybersecurity, created some of the techniques and stayed at the forefront with big businesses like Nice Actimize and others 
that have been establishing thousands of people strong global leading cooperation with that research and with their advancement. So it, it's not it's so important that AI innovation and AI, AI commercialization is recognized coming from Canada because we literally were the birthplace of modern um, AI. It's simple as that. So otherwise, you know, we would have looked at we looked at ourselves as some people that have created something and gave it to someone else again, mm. right? And and do we want to be that nation? Do we want to be a nation of people that start things and let someone else collect the rewards? Yeah, I, I think you've touched on uh, on on a very important point there because I, I myself personally, before you brought that up, I had no idea that uh, that AI was something that uh, was brought to Canada and really kind of developed and nurtured and you know absolutely kind of two of the three two of the three godfathers of AI of, of deep learning which is not just AI but it's one of the techniques that is very uh, important um, are based in Canada you know Shabenglio in uh, in in, Ma- in Montreal and then Jeff Hinton in Toronto then the third one Yann Lockhart is in Paris right working for Facebook but two out of three I, I find it so it, it's it, it it's interesting because I find this to be like a, a, a kind of consistent theme in some of the some of the guests I've interviewed uh, recently and there does seem to, it this this seems like a uniquely Canadian story in, in two ways in the sense that um, there has been number one a fantastic source of innovation a fantastic source of, of inspiration of really just you know genius coming out of this country and the second part is, we're not talking about it. We're not, you know, displaying it. We're not. Uh, yeah. We're not taking that kind of competitive edge that you would see. Uh, so that sometimes, you know, comes more from our neighbors to the south, and it's, it's, well, it's, think, it becomes, uh, you know, a need to kind of recognize that we have this incredible innovation and yeah. then take it forward. Sure. Sure, but there's something so powerful mm-hmm. about being underestimated. There's something just so powerful when you arrive at the table and people underestimate you, and then. They open the book and look, page one, numbers are incredible. Page two, the team is solid. Page three, there's no churn that company. When we arrive uh, with uh, some VCs in the US that looked at us and they never heard of our name and then they start looking, amount of customers, patents being filed, you know, the substance. So, you know, uh, Bravado mm-hmm. only gets you so far. So um, this, um, I have no problem with us being a bit underestimated when I have a yeah. problem with us giving up, right? It's, I don't need to be in the first page of the news every day. I don't want actually to be on the first page of the news every day. Um, there's, you know, the most happy people and, and the most peaceful organizations I know don't have to deal with the press every day. I love the press, but mm-hmm. it can be a distraction, right? Um, but they do serve their community, they serve their clients with tangible, meaningful solutions mm-hmm. that are impactful, right? And out of that, they also, you know, have a greed and a appetite to go international and dominate. You know, you don't you don't just go compete on the field to be third or second. You mm-hmm. go to win first place and you do the best. Yeah, because if you're not going to go to win, why, uh, why are you bothering being there? Yeah, exactly. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that, Solon. And moving forward, as the founder of MindBridge AI, what have been some of the major challenges you've experienced and how has your role changed as the company scales? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, it's... <laughs> It has changed many more times than I expected, <laughs> which had sometimes um, you have to be careful what you ask for. Um, <laughs> but here's, I would say this, this was three key phase 
um, you know, that we went through. Um, the first one is just, you know, the launch and when you have no product, no sales. And there, I, um, so first of all, I give myself, um, I think I changed two or three types of title. Um, and always the one that sticks with everyone, even though I try to minimize it at some point, uh, was founder. But at the first one, uh, mm. when the CEO come, um, well, before the CEO, of course, it was the before we have a CEO and a big team assembled. But I will, I will discount, um, you know. Well, you know what? Let's go with the fourth phase. Okay, so the very first one, the initiation of the company. Um, when, you're C, when you're not CEO, when you're a single guy trying to enroll a team where you don't have funding, right, um, you need to rely on your friends. And of course, you give them options in the company, yep. and you all have jobs. So we were—it was a gruesome first year where we would have—I I, was—I had two contracts from other organizations to provide, you know, pay for the school and food and contribute to the family. I'm very proud to say that I would went through that phase with never zero income and any months provided um, to the family. But that—that that meant thank you. That meant I had evenings and Sundays to start only. So mm -hmm. some and some of my co-founder, uh, for example, Chrissy, which leads our design, um, she had a full-time job uh, as well, and we were just discussing. There was no company incorporated, and we were just doing research, right? Then I decided to go ahead on my own, and and this is when things got really intense because I was making emails. I was doing basically sales first. I'm a sales. I'm a market first mm -hmm. type of guy. I'm not inventor. I'm a market first guy. So I basically hit LinkedIn with. 100 introductions a night uh, for weeks until I found a repeating pattern of customers that validated what I knew about the market. And um, then it was about assemble. There was I, I did a presentation at Algonquin College about you know what it takes to go from zero to one employee, from zero to one client, and it's very hard. Um, then the second phase is once you start having that first client, and when you have a, a, a team that is new than marketplace, mm -hmm. and I had a, almost a decade in, in that industry. But they don't. So the first, I would say the first year and a half, the key focus was around being credible and finding the pain. You know, actually, there's a, you know, I'm going to quote a book that was very helpful to me that actually was sponsored by Startup Canada. I just remembered that before the call, which is very funny. Startup opportunities, know when to quit your day job by Sean Wise and Brad Feld. <laughs> and I think it was actually the CEO of Startup Canada who gave it to me. <laughs> And um, there was a, a section there that talks about, you know, is mm -hmm. your, are you are going after a vitamin, you know, or a painkiller, right? And and so what with the beginning, I was using my domain expertise, and, you know, my partner and the CEO of Mindbridge used to tell me, so right now the, the one thing you need to understand is you need to empower the team as much as possible with your day, your decade of experience. So I need to, to lay you flat on the yep. on the table and put electrodes in your brain, and I need everyone to feed from it. <laughs> So that was the first phase. And then when we got a product built and we started having initial customers, then the second, I mean, third, sorry, the third, the third phase was the rate of adoption. When you have, as soon as you take investors' money, you need to show adoption fast to prove that there's a real market to worthy of the investment. You have fiduciary responsibility, but also to build a team and, and deliver the product, you need to get scale fast. So what I did in that third phase is I hit the streets. I was traveling an insane amount of time, um, every two weeks at least, uh, going to conferences, uh, going to my network, uh, talking to industry press, 
um, and just visiting cl uh, potential clients nonstop uh, while you know the back office was building mm -hmm. up and to really ensure that we get to hundreds of clients as fast as possible uh, using all my knowledge of the market infrastructure. And right. this is where MindBridge is not a startup, it's a start out. When you have a guy like Mark Bernhoff that was at Siebel and knew all the market and launched Salesforce, he starts with an advantage. Um, people soft founder that went to do Workday, same way. Um, me, when I was in the industry and I left and then I go back in that industry, I know all the market infrastructure, which is something most entrepreneurs when they start, they don't have. They don't have an industry insider to help. So at the third phase of, of, of uh, MyBridge, when it was to increase the rate of adoption, that was really what I focused on, which was evangelizing, opening <laughs> doors, and the sales team loved me for that. They called me the can opener. Uh, and then uh, now the phase um, where we are, um, where you, you've achieved, you're now going global, right? You are going deeper into the market. You have half of the top 100 clients in one market and you have two other markets being open in parallel. You're having a multi-product, you have a product suite. You don't have just one product. Then it's the hardest thing now is the 10X rule at scale. So pushing the team, pushing the market, helping the team, helping the market is now a given. I have to do that all the time. But here's the really important part. Whatever we do now, it's the innovator's dilemma. It's the, whatever we do, it mm. needs to be a 10 times improvement of anything else that exists in the marketplace, right? And you have to maintain that 10x rule to keep being the number one player. And that includes, so it, now when you have a team of over 100 people, it includes operational efficiency. You need to do things in a 10 times better way. You know, innovation is not, not just technology, it's also process innovation, how you onboard customers, how you do sales and things like that. And I found myself in a position that too, I don't have the answers anymore. We find the answers as a team. That's the only way we win. So we have a new uh, Anarita. Hi, I'm giving a shout out there because uh, amazing new leader that comes, you know, director or manager of a team and you, you work with her and you learn and you, the learning is, is bi bilateral. And so you find solutions to keep that 10x advantage at scale and solve issues. Um, and it's, it's a very different challenge. And I embrace, I, I embraced every single phase of it. Each one of them is as hard as the other, mm. but completely different. Mm. That's a great, great overview. And, and, and it really is, uh, it, it really is great to see how you've, you've honed so well this, uh, this journey of yours, um, in all of its stages and, and really kind of refined, uh, exactly where you were and, and who you were, uh, along with your team and how your role has changed and shifted along the way. You know, it's, there's something people say, maybe I was crazy, but I put myself in a position where I would give myself a six-month contract on my own company, which means every six months, there's actually something I invite every entrepreneur to do. The oldest book, in the, in the, in the oldest book of self-development um, is Think and Grow Rich by Carnegie Mellon, right? Um, Think and Grow Rich, um, that was sponsored by Carnegie Mellon, is a 90-years-old book, okay? And in that book, it tells, talks a lot about those 800 very successful people 90 years ago. And you, it's crazy that a book of 90 years ago has 70% of it being relevant today, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things it talks about is the importance of self-assessment. There's 25 questions you have as an entrepreneur, ask yourself every year. I do that every six months. Mm -hmm. And one thing is leave your ego out of the room. So I literally a week ago was sitting with the CEO and the head of sales 
And then I have a C exec title in the company, whatever. And I ask them, okay, every six months a year, what should be my title? If tomorrow they tell me your title is manager of coffee maker, I'll take that title if that's what the need needs the most. Mm -hmm. You understand? It's, yes. it's really important um, to, and then, you know, I had that advantage where uh, maybe I have diffidence issues or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, I saw it as an advantage because I had the ability to just completely self-efface myself and my aspirations to some extent in crucial, not all the time, nobody does that all the time, that's unhealthy, but at crucial key pivotal moments where I had to make a decision. Mm. And I think that really, uh, that, that leads very well into my next question, which is um, how did you decide that you didn't want to be the CEO of your company and what's what's been the impact of that? But I, I just wanna to touch on one thing because I would also imagine that um, by you having your role shift and by you being open about your role shift and consulting your team about your role, I would say that that also gives uh, a great amount of agency to the people on your team. And it also, um, it, it can kind of shift a lot of the pressure, I would imagine, off of you and say to your team, like, no, like, we're, we're all wish. in. You wish? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. the opposite. They have, they, have, yeah, they have a higher expectation mm. of you, right? If, if you're the guy that, and, and by the way, I embrace it, like something as simple as I'm a very outspoken guy, as you notice, I'm not very shy, and, and I'm, a, I'm a former rugby guy, and at the oh, same time, too. you know, brother, sister. Okay, great. And I'm a French guy in Brazilian. So when you have a passionate French with a Latin background, it's going to be loud <laughs> and it's going to be very colorful mm -hmm. all the time. And, and I have someone, some of my staff, Canadian, that tell me, so it's not that we have a problem with what you say or how you express yourself, but it stresses mm -hmm. me. The, the intensity stresses me. And this is, you know, they expect you. And then so the, and the depression result as well is even higher because if you are a guy that have a decade of experience in the industry, and if you're the guy that is, you know, you know guilty for having started this thing, they look to you to contribute and pull your weight more than others even more than you can sometimes, regardless of what's your situation at home. I went through divorce, and sometimes some of the comments I had in the office were just cold-hearted. Mm -hmm. Like, they, 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 they knew that I was going through a pain, and there was just some cold-hearted comments, right? But you can't take it personal, because they, they, it's just, you have to embrace the responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, going back to your question, um, it's not that I didn't want to be the CEO of my company. Um, is that... I always, um, my, 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 you know, my father always taught me to be mindful of some scars and white hair are just the result of old age, but some scars and some white hair are the result of bad experiences. Mm. And people that went through that usually have learned something out of it if they are intelligent. So I always seeked advice as early on. As soon as I incorporated, I called some of my former CEOs from Silicon Valley or other places. I called some of my former managers and asked them, what did you think I knew how to do best? Uh, do you think this is for me? What do you think? I was literally having a mini virtual board mm -hmm. of advisors made of all the people that I reported to. Because those people, when uh, they don't have vested interest on me anymore. They were not investors in the company, but they knew me. They had worked for years with me. And two of them told me, so, so who's going to be the CEO? And I was the CEO. I was like, what do you mean? And they said, knowing you, I don't think you're going to enjoy that part. Mm -hmm. And then, I, and then I don't let go. When someone tells me something, I don't take personal. I just ask why. No, of course. I ask, that's such a powerful why and why. And so what do I do about it? And then, and then at the same time, I was going through looking at the, the, the marketplace, and, and sorry to say it, but a young, outspoken, you know, maverick with curly head, with a strong accent, 
is not going to attract the same capital as a patient, accomplished entrepreneur or CEO that's done it before. You can, I'm sorry guys, put your ego in the bas- in, the, in the garbage can yeah. there. Like, this is just the reality of life. Uh, the same thing said by someone that has done it with uh, nice suits and white hair will bring more credibility than you being the first time entrepreneur. And I, 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 it's a, you know, I embrace tough love. Actually, I read a book recently, uh, Principles from Ray Dalio, that talks about it. You need to embrace tough love. And for me, I just thought of the deck. I thought, if I need to pitch and fundraise for this company, and there's the team slide, do I want to be, see myself as CEO? And I said, well, if I could have my former CEO that has done it, that was a VC that had two exits instead of me, I know mm-hmm. I would be able to fundraise easier. That's simple as that. It's like a mechanical lining up the deck position. As strong the team is, the better it is. And you know, if you look today at the leadership team of my bridge, you see like I'm the youngest and you see some of the resumes, they are like very humble. <laughs> I, I, I believe that. And I believe that's... Uh... That's definitely probably um, some of the best advice you can give to entrepreneurs is just being, you know, just simply like be aware of not only who yep. you are in, in, in the game you're playing, but the situation and the kind of the conditions that you're in as well. Absolutely. And I'll leave it, uh, I conclude on that answer that is long, but I would call everyone to read that, that book actually from Startup Opportunities, again, sponsored by Startup Canada. I <laughs> promise uh, to all, everyone listening, Startup Canada did not pay me to make that advertisement, <laughs> but this is the pure truth. I was hesitating. And then when I met Eli, who um, was to become the CEO of MindBridge, there was page 64 of that book that talks about the talent triangle, which the three key talents needed uh, to really have a founding team that is strong. A domain knowledge person, an operational experience person, and a business acumen. I had domain knowledge. I can tell you I'm not the best operator, and I can find tons of people that have more business experience than me. So this is exactly what happened at MyBridge. If you look at... Eli was a business acumen, experience and season. Someone was a domain expert. And then you had people like uh, Robin and Jim that had operational experience, the ability to build a product at scale that is, you know, enterprise grade. And that talent triangle, honestly, is one of the key, you know, some of our investors call us a happy meal. Not only we had mm-hmm. entrepreneurial spirit, but we had also someone that done it with experience. And on top of that, we had global experts, very high level professionals. Mm. That's those are some great, great solid takeaways. I think, especially especially that talent triangle. That's a fantastic one. I think um, I think where I want to go next is uh, where I want to go next is I want to know about where you're going next. What would your vision over the next couple of years for MindBridge be? Well, MindBridge is just getting started. Like it's funny because people think we've arrived and you know and you know that you know we're successful. And I can tell you, if you talk to the team of MindBridge, they feel every day is like the first day. It's very interesting because our vision is really globally to that when people have financial results on a report that. It's the best trustworthy reports who come from something that's been verified by MindBridge. Mm. So if you think about the scale of that statement, that means there's over 80 countries that are very big and meaningful, right, in the world. There's dozens of governments and there's 
hundreds of financial institutions and almost every CFO of a publicly traded company anywhere in the world should look at what we do because the, that's our vision. That's really, and, and we are right now positioned, we're the only one positioned to really be able to make it happen. Um, to really, and so that vision means MindBridge, we have an, an office um, that might open in two different, an office in one country and another one in 2020. Um, we're talking about, you know, a lot more hires and more importantly, you know, really going global, uh, which we've already started. We are in over 12 countries now. Um, so in the next couple of years um, at MindBridge, I think it's going to be always keeping a great team, building a great team to serve a great client base that have high expectations of us and really drive that vision home. That's quite the laundry list. And it's, uh, it's one that I, I do think uh, and, and does sound like you're 100% committed to delivering on. Um, as an entrepreneurial leader and community builder, what's your vision for Canadian entrepreneurship and for the art artificial intelligence ecosystem uh, in the country as well? And I, I also want to add on um, a little bit to that question as well in saying, what is the support you're seeing for uh, entrepreneurs in the AI ecosystem? And how could organizations like Startup Canada um, help to maybe bridge some of the gaps that you might see there as well? Uh, well, I'm very, I'm the worst person to ask that question. I'm a, I'm a, I'm part of, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I'm a purist. Um, I'm part of, um, look, when I arrived in Silicon Valley, um, I will always remember, I landed on a Saturday morning and I was invited with the founding team um, to go for brunch on Sunday. And they say it's casual. And by the meant it's casual, it means it's business casual with their family. And they were all at the museum. And the two co-founders, the families were playing together, but they were walking, okay? And, mm -hmm. and those people, I learned a few things from them. And one of the things I learned from them is being an entrepreneur, being a talented entrepreneur, is not raising $10 million, buying a nice office, hiring a bunch of people, and then building something. That's not called entrepreneurship. That's called shopping. You get a $10 million yeah. check from daddy and mommy, and you go shopping with it. That, that doesn't require that much talent. Um, entrepreneurs are supposed to create value, create something out of thin air. And so, yes, the community support has been exceptional. I can tell you I would have not succeeded if I would have moved back to Silicon Valley or to France as much as I succeeded because I was in Canada. And everything added. Right. You know, whether it's Invest Ottawa, whether it's the communities like Fresh Founders, um, or even El Spark in, in Ottawa, or Mars, and Communotech. I mean, one month we were running out of payroll, and Lisa Cashmore, who was, he, who was at Communotech in Waterloo, helped point out a program we could leverage that enabled us to have key investors come in and keep the company going. In Montreal, we would not exist without Real Ventures, and Jess and Jeff, who, Element AI is like, I consider them like a sister company or our cousin company because we had the same board member at the beginning, and their CEOs was in the pitch room when we were pitching MindBridge with Real Venture. It's a very tight ecosystem. Mm. It's a very supportive ecosystem. You know, I love that ecosystem. The Canadian entrepreneur, the fact that the numbers are smaller is a strength, right? We exchange mm -hmm. talent. We, when people don't fit in a company, we, we are gladly recommend them to someone else, and they, and, and, and they fit better somewhere else. It, it's a very strong entrepreneurial community. There's not much more I would change. I think what Startup Canada is doing, outreaching to cities that might not have access to knowledge and, to, and what we're doing today and share the expertise of others is very useful. But at the end of the day, 
remember what I said, entrepreneurs are supposed to hunt on their own, catch the, you know, the, whatever they're hunting on their own and be able to cut it in pieces and distribute it to the community. So think about a hunter when he goes, when a hunter was going to chase a mammoth, right? Um, nobody, mm -hmm. most of the time he has to figure out on his own, right? And he has to be able to catch the mammoth. He has to be able to kill it, cut it in pieces, bring it back to the cave and share Like at some point they need to do it on their own, right? And mm -hmm. so my vision is that I see some entrepreneurs, you know, asking more money for IRAP, asking for more money all the way from the community. I say, guys, you are the, <laughs> at the end of the day, you're the change agent. You have to go and hunt on your own, right? And if there's more help, great. I, look, without some of the help I got, my bridge would have been half of the size, okay? The help of the community, mm -hmm. it takes really a village to create something like my bridge, literally. Every single part of Ottawa have been scouted for talent in the early days. Every single contact I had, every single friends I've heard that I'm hiring uh, or looking for investors, everyone from Canada to Orleans and from Montreal to Toronto have seen my face at least once uh, <laughs> more than they wanted sometimes. <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> but but you have to hunt. And it's not up, nobody is mm. going to teach you to be hungry. You have to be hungry. That's true. That's true. And now you've got a mammoth. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. I think we, we, <laughs> we're, we're working on it. on it. Yes. You're on the scent. There we go. So, Salon, as we uh, as we wrap up our conversation today, uh, and in light of everything that we have covered and everything we have talked about, what do you think the most tangible takeaways for entrepreneurs would be? How do they go out and get this mammoth? Oh, it's a very simple advice. Look, we, um, when I was, there, uh, I think we read the Series A, I used to challenge politely and, you know, um, remove AI from your deck. Does your problem you solve still holds and is still as crisp and is still as sexy just because AI is all the rage right now, which was not the case five years ago, but just because AI is all the rage right now, that doesn't mean you have a solid, you know, multi-generational transformative business. If you, re if you remove the AI of your deck, does it still hold? Does your value proposition mm -hmm. still hold by if completely erasing the technological aspect of it? If not, I really invite you to work harder on your value proposition. Because trust me, 20 years from now, nobody's going to talk about AI as a main feature. They will just assume it's part of it. Like nobody will, right. nobody will buy an, a smartphone today. We don't call it smartphone. We call it an iPhone, an Android, whatever, Pixel. We just assume it's smart because otherwise it's not a phone. We call it a feature phone. Yep. We, the role has been inverted in cell phones. What used to be called smartphone, it was a minority. Now it's just called a cell phone. And now when you, you don't have the smart component, how do we call that? A feature phone, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing that's going to happen with AI. So for all AI entrepreneurs, remember, your business is to be a lasting, enduring value proposition. Remove AI from all your slides on your deck when you do fundraising. Remove AI from all your sales deck just for an exercise internally. You don't have to do it outside, but just for an internal exercise to harden your value proposition. That's what made us very, very, very successful. Because very quickly, the whole discussion in the deck and others, it was not about the fact that, yes, we had some incredible uh, AI infrastructure. We have a real AI expert system. We have real uh, proprietary machine learning. And we have a very cool tech being built and one patent awarded and more coming. But all of that is just the enabler of the solution. You understand? Mm. Mm. 
yeah, no, Salon, those are those are great takeaways, and that's uh, that really is a again, it's it's a it's a high level takeaway in, in the sense that it's like you know what, at its core, does your business solve a problem, regardless of what the kind of bells and whistles and additions and trends that you yeah. are on top of, does it address this problem? Yeah. And that's that's the core of it, and that really is. Salon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for your time, for sharing your wisdom, sharing your expertise and your experience. And again, we really can't thank you enough. Um, all the best in uh, in hunting down this mammoth. I know you're on the trail, and uh, I know that once you bring this home, there's going to be uh, a lot of people eating well for a very, very long time to come. Hopefully, you know, Canada has been very good to me, so I'm trying my best to return the favor. Fantastic sentiment to end on. All right, Salon. Thank you for Take care. All the best. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Until next week, I'm your host, Matt Curtis. Go check out the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular hashtag startup chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. 